Let's turn to Matthew 28. This morning we're going to finish our series in Matthew. We're going to read the last passage. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, to the end of the chapter. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we approach now this enormous passage, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have spoken. Give us hearts of understanding. Give us faith, Lord, that sees you for who you really are. Lord, help us to see what it is you want us to see in this passage this morning. Help us to see the calling that you have called your church to. Lord, give us courage and help us, most of all, as we consider these words that we would consider them knowing that they are your truth. They are words that are inspired by you and not the words of any man. Help us to listen and attend to them accordingly. Lord, may you be glorified in what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have heard of the term cliffhanger? I'm not referring to the, the movie with Sylvester Stallone, the 19s, whatever, 70s or 80s movie, Cliffhanger. <clears throat> How many of you have heard of the term cliffhanger? A cliffhanger, dictionary definition, is an unresolved ending in a drama or a book that leaves the audience or the reader eager to know what will happen next. So how many of you are familiar with this concept of a cliffhanger? So if you're watching a movie and the movie comes to an end and all of a sudden on the screen you see the words the end question mark that would be a cliffhanger or to be continued that would also be a cliffhanger uh, if you've ever seen the lord of the rings in the first episode uh, the lord of the rings the first episode ends with uh no resolution right there's uh four hobbits and two of them are on their way to the enemy's land to throw the ring in, but no one knows if they're going to succeed or not. And the other two hobbits get captured by the orcs and, and somebody's dead in their fellowship. And that's how it ends. It's, there's no satisfaction. There's no resolution. That would be a cliffhanger. An ending that leaves the audience or reader eager to know what will happen next. And what we find is, when we finally come to our conclusion here in the Gospel of Matthew, we find a veritable cliffhanger hanger. Not everything, of course, is unresolved when we come to the end of Matthew. Jesus, 
the one that we've been following since the very beginning, the one we've been falling in love with, the one we've been learning from, he dies and everyone is confused and everyone is alarmed and everyone is sad and filled with sorrow. And last week we looked at how his resurrection brings joy and turns that confusion into understanding. And so there's resolution in the resurrection of Jesus. There's satisfaction in knowing that Jesus the Messiah has risen from the dead. But there's so many questions that remain unanswered. It's kind of like a movie that ends and there's something that happens, but there's not a final resolution. What about the Pharisees? I mean, these guys we've been seeing in conflict with Jesus the whole time. Jesus has now risen, but what's going to happen with the Pharisees? What about the false report that we just read about in the verses just before where the soldiers go to the Sanhedrin and they give them money and say, spread, it, spread this word that the disciples stole the body. And it says, this report is common among the Jews unto this day. Well, what's the resolution to that? What about Christ, the Messiah's rule as king over all the earth? We don't see that at the end of Matthew. And what about this mission that we see Jesus give to his disciples? Go into all the world. It's kind of like Frodo. Go and deliver the ring to Mordor. But has he done it? No. It's a cliffhanger. And we desire to know what will happen next. R.T. France uh, a scholar who wrote extensively on the Gospel of Matthew, he says, this closing section is more a beginning than it is an end. And that's how we are to understand the ending of Matthew now that we've come to it. Let this sink down into your ears and in our hearts. It's more of a beginning than it is an end. When a Christian or someone reads through the Gospel of Matthew and they are actually getting what Matthew's saying, when you get to the end, you should realize that this book is launching you out. It's the beginning of a new chapter, a new installment in the story, and an installment in the story, a chapter that we belong to. This is now our part of the story. You and I, brothers and sisters, are now in the next chapter, what follows. It's happening right now. And what we've read this morning, this section, helps us see what our chapter is all about. And it helps us see what we are doing and to be doing at this time. So this morning, I'd like to look at three things with this section that we just read, which is going to inform us on what our lives and our chapter is all about. What now are we to be doing in the light of the Gospel of Matthew? I want to ask three questions. First of all, who is involved in this new chapter? Secondly, what is involved in this new chapter? And thirdly, how will this new chapter come to an end? How will this new chapter end? Who is involved, what is involved, and how will it end? So firstly, who is involved in this new chapter? And right away, I'd like to say this, that this new installment or saga in the story of God involves ordinary people exactly like me and you. Ordinary people exactly like me and you. You look at verse 16. Uh, disciples go to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And Jesus, already we saw earlier before he died, told them that they're going to kill me, but when I'm resurrected, then I will meet you in Galilee. Jesus has already spoken this in Matthew 26. And then you remember the angel at the tomb, when the women come to the tomb, say, go tell the disciples to go because Jesus is not here, he's risen, to go tell the disciples to go meet them, meet him in Galilee, he will see 
them there. They will see him there, just as he said. And so the 11 disciples go to the mountain to meet Jesus. Jesus calls them to himself. And because of this, some people foolishly think that Christ's instructions here in this closing part of Matthew are only meant for the 11 disciples. Because what we read is the 11 disciples go to the place Jesus appointed them. So they foolishly think that this is not for everyone. This is not for us. This is not for you and I. This is for the 11 disciples only. Other people try to confute that view by saying that probably all the disciples were there. All the Christians that were believers in Christ at that time were also on that mountain. It wasn't just the 11. Some people think this was the place where Jesus appeared to 500, where Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says that Jesus appeared to 500. So they try to confute that view that, the, that this mission is only for the 11 by saying all the disciples were there. Though they're not mentioned, they, they were there, they say. And that's plausible. Possibly everyone was there. But that's not the reason why this chapter is for all, because it's not about numbers. This mission is not about a cold, hard, quantitative fact. Who did Jesus mouth the words to on that mountain? Because if it was just that, then we might even say, well, then it was just for those disciples who were there, the 500, and not for everyone. We understand who this is for and who is involved now in this new mission and in this chapter when we understand the gist of what Jesus is saying. You know that when you read the Bible, sometimes you can just read the Bible and just the words go through your, your eyes and they go into your brain, you memorize the words, but you have to understand the gist, the essence, the marrow, the crux of what Jesus is saying here with his final words. And when you understand what Jesus is is giving them, when you understand the mission, you understand, of course, this is not just for the 11. First of all, it couldn't be accomplished just by the 11. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You think the 11 are going to be able to do that all on their own? No. And when we understand what they're being sent to do, as I said, we should realize it shouldn't be just for the 11. Rather, we should understand the 11 being called to Jesus are like a commander calling his generals to a private meeting, and he's giving the generals instructions for the entire army. It would be foolish to say that if, if a commander-in-chief called his generals into a private meeting and say, this is what we need to do, that we would assume that it's only for the generals to do, right? No, it's for the entire body of Christ. In verse 17, we find a remarkable thing. When the disciples saw him, it says they worshipped him, but it also says that some of them doubted. What a way to conclude your gospel, eh? If you were just wanting to convince people to believe in Jesus and it's so bonehead obvious that he's the Son of God, which we do maintain that it is, yet look, even the disciples are doubting. We have a strong proof here of the authenticity of this event as actually happening. If it was fictional, I doubt that anyone would write that the disciples doubted. All the Gospels record the disciples' unbelief. Some go into great detail of the disciples' unbelief. For example, even when all the apostles say, we've seen the Lord, one of them, Thomas, still doesn't believe. Even when all of his friends say, we've seen the Lord. What we see here is that the apostles are real people, 
just like us, and they were not gullible. Some people get the idea that people back in the day were gullible, and now in the modern world, we're scientific and we're not gullible anymore, and we don't believe in supernatural things. And that's foolish. People have always been the same, and people have always had a hard time believing in the miraculous. But their very doubt, A.T. Robertson says, makes it easier for us to believe. Their very doubt, realizing that, wow, even the disciples who were with Jesus had a hard time believing. It means there's some hope for me, struggling, doubting Thomas of the 21st century. There's some hope for me. Because imagine if there was no doubt whatsoever ever recorded in the scriptures. You'd have a very unreal picture of people, wouldn't you? And you might get discouraged and think, those guys are just special, you know. When someone gets saved, they don't have doubts. And so because I have doubts, I'm probably, I'm not going to be saved. Their doubt makes it easier for us to believe. I'd like to just briefly touch on three main reasons why people have unbelief in Jesus. Common in those days and common today. Three main reasons for unbelief, and I'm sure you'll resonate with this if you're a human being. First of all, and I'm just drawing these principles from Scripture themselves, First of all, we have unbelief in Christ because we doubt the miraculous. We have unbelief in the miraculous. We have a hard time believing that supernatural things can happen. This is most common form of unbelief among atheists, right? That's not natural. That can't happen. Virgins can't conceive. Dead people can't come back to life. People can't be healed. God, you, can't get, you can't feed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread, right? It's just this naturalistic way of thinking. And so we doubt, in, we, we disbelieve in Christ because we have doubt in the miraculous. But you'll remember Paul says in Acts 26 verse 8, why should it be thought incredible if God should raise the dead? And the component that we are missing whenever we're doubting the supernatural, and let's make this very clear, if you've ever doubted the supernatural, here's why. The component that we're missing is that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. We believe that dead people do not naturally rise from the dead, and we can stand with every atheist on that one. But we're saying there's more to life than nature. There's a God who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and nothing is impossible with this God. And so the cure for unbelief in the miraculous is faith in God. Not just, I got to believe that supernatural things can happen. No, you need to reevaluate the object of your faith. Consider how mighty and powerful God is. That's the first reason people doubt. People don't believe in Christ. The second reason is because of lack of understanding. Unbelief in Christ because of lack of understanding. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 25, Jesus says this to a few disciples who were doubting that Jesus was the Messiah. And he says to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Another reason why people don't believe in Christ is because they fail to understand who Jesus is and they fail to understand the scriptures. I, the most common uh, 
form of this unbelief would be found among Jews and Muslims who believe in God and who believe in the miracles, but they don't believe in Christ because they don't understand the law and the prophets. Ought not Christ to have come and suffered for our sins and risen from the dead and enter into his glory? You're not believing because you don't understand the necessity of the death of Christ and the inevitable consequence of his resurrection. You don't understand the law and the prophets testify of his sufferings and his glory. So there's another reason. So the cure for disbelieving in Christ, the cure for those Jews and those Muslims and whoever else who don't believe in Christ, though they believe in God and the supernatural, is to study the scriptures, is to reevaluate their faith in the scriptures and understanding of who Jesus is. And lastly, um, one of the most common reasons people don't believe in Jesus, and this is the most interesting one in Luke chapter 24, verse 41. This one's most common, I think, among Christians. Is it says in verse 41, the disciples yet believed not for joy. <laughs> they believed not for joy. In layman's term, what that means is it's so hard to believe because it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. Christians struggle with this one. How many of you have ever struggled with that before? So you believe in God and you believe he's supernaturally able and you, you see the scriptures are all pointing to Jesus' death and resurrection, but there's a little bit of nagging unbelief because this is just too good to be true. And you're like the disciples who are seeing Jesus there and for joy, they're not believing. But brothers and sisters, there's no reason to doubt Jesus for this reason except a, a cynicism that judges things by human standards. Well, I've never met a man that that's good. I mean, what you're telling me is that God loves me. And what you're telling me is that God cares about me even though I'm a sinner. And that he loves me so much, even though I've wronged him so badly, he sent his son to die for my sins and save me from hell. And it's completely free and I don't have to do anything to get it, but just trust in that? No works necessary? That's too good. No one is like that, you see? And what we're doing is we're judging Christ by human standards. I don't know anyone is like that. And what we're saying is the cure for this kind of unbelief is to lift your vision up above human standards and to set your, the object of your faith in God who is good. The main message of Jesus is God is good. God is a God of grace. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And if you're ever struggling with that, well, it seems too good to be true. My conscience, my natural way of thinking is pulling me back and saying, no, I have to keep the commandments to be right with God. It can't be that good. Brothers and sisters, uh, every time you doubt, side with, the, side, with the, uh, side with Jesus and his words that God is transcendent above man. Don't be pulled back by natural ways of thinking. Say, you know what? I know it feels wrong, but God's ways are higher than I, and he's not like us. He is a God of grace. This is the main message of Scripture. So if you struggle with doubt in, these, in any of these areas, just think about how powerful God is, how good God is, and what God has revealed through his prophets. It's not about you being strong in faith in and of yourself. It's about the object of your faith being strong. That's the issue. If you want strong faith, it's not you working it up from the inside. It's you evaluating what you are believing in. Him, God. So the point here, who is involved in this new chapter? All of God's people 
are involved in this new mission and this new chapter. You and I are, and we are as normal as can be. We are ordinary people, and the disciples were ordinary people. And that makes our task all the more remarkable. If we grasp what Jesus is doing, he's calling the 11 to himself and whoever else, and he's commissioning the most ordinary, doubtful people, which includes you and I, to an extraordinary task. Secondly, what is involved? Simply the enormous, extraordinary task of spreading the gospel worldwide. Jesus now speaks, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke unto them his final words. Charles Erdman writes, These surely are the words of a king. A.B. Bruce says, The speech of Jesus here is majestic, but his bearing is friendly, meant to set them free from doubt and fear. And you can see that tone in the words of Jesus. He says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. What does that mean? And why is he telling them that? What is telling them that meant to accomplish? The word power in the Greek is the word authority. Those two words are often interchangeable. All authority is given unto me. What is authority? Authority is a little understood concept these days, especially after the last century's attack on authority, question authority. People are kind of left in doubt as to what authority is. There's two ways we understand authority, typically. Have you ever heard someone say, he's an authority on this subject? You ever heard someone say that? Meaning he's an expert. He's an authority on the subject of baking cakes. So if you don't want to get in trouble when you bake cakes and get into all sorts of errors, you consult him. He's the authority. Do you think Jesus was saying that? All authority is given unto me. All expertise in all things is given unto me. There's another way to understand authority, and that is government authority. Government authority. It's the right and the power to enforce rules and give orders and govern. Government authority. When we talk about government authority, we're talking about two things, legitimacy and power. Power is essential to authority. How many of you have ever heard that if the Supreme Court didn't have the military and the police force and everyone backing them up, then their statements would have little value, right? Their statement would have little weight. If the court said, you can't do that in this country, but if no one enforced their rules, then they wouldn't have any power. They would just be one of many voices in this country who are saying, you can't do that or you shall do that. But mere power is not enough. For example, you might have a mob and they want to take justice into their own hands and they have someone in the city who uh, they deem a criminal and the mob comes and with their force of arms, they take down the police and they take out this person. The mob has power, but mere power is not sufficient to have authority. To have authority, one must have power and one must have legitimacy and undoubtedly, Jesus has power and he has the right to rule. This is the authority that he's talking about. The government authority of God. Jesus is the king, not merely of the Jews, but of all heaven and earth. The scriptures say that Jesus is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He's the monarch. 
He's the sole ruler of all things. And this is what is meant when Jesus there on that mountain calls the ordinary disciples to himself, and he says, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am the supreme ruler of all things. What a statement for him to make. A small sampling of Jesus' authority can be seen throughout the Gospels. Jesus has authority in teaching. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, everyone was shocked at how Jesus taught because it says he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And you remember just before that verse, Jesus had basically said, if you don't listen to me, you're going to be destroyed, right? Those who listen to me are like a wise man who built their house upon the rock. Now, if you don't listen to me, you're going to build your house on the sand and you'll be destroyed. Jesus didn't appeal to tradition. Jesus didn't appeal to any superiors. Jesus said, I say unto you, and if you don't listen to me, you will be destroyed. We see Jesus have authority over nature in the next chapter. A centurion comes to Jesus and says, can you come and heal my servant? Jesus says, I'll come. And he says, oh, well, you don't need to come, actually. He said, heal my servant. You don't need to come because I'm a man who has people under me. I'm a man of authority. I just say go, and they go, and it's done. Just say the word. And Jesus said, this man has great faith. That is a great object of faith. And Jesus just said the word, and he was healed. And as we go on in the chapter, you'll remember the disciples were about to be swamped with water on their boat, and Jesus stood up, and he rebuked the wind and the waves. How many of you have authority over the wind and the waves? How many of you have the power to do that and the right to do that, to rebuke nature, Jesus, they said, what manner of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. What if they had disobeyed him? What would have been the retribution? There would have been something. They couldn't not obey him because he has the power and the right and authority over nature. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looks at a paralytic man and says, your sins are forgiven. And they said, what man can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And he says, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, rise up and walk. Jesus has the right and the power to forgive your sin. And what an amazing miracle that is. That's even more power than silencing the wind and the waves, is it not? The right and the power to forgive sin. In John chapter 5, Jesus says that all authority has been given to him to judge the world. Jesus has authority, legitimacy, and power to judge. The scripture makes it very clear that he is our judge. He is the one who we will face. And that is not an illegitimate court. And it's not like the Supreme Court that makes pronouncements but has no weight behind what they say and no ability to enforce. When Jesus judges this world, what he says will happen. John 17, 2, Jesus says that God has given him authority to give eternal life to man. The authority to give life to the dead and to raise life from the dead. And so it's no surprise that in Revelation 1.18, Jesus says he has authority over death and hell. Imagine having the keys to death and hell. I can open up death and close death if I want. I can send people into death. I can send people out of death. I can deliver people from condemnation. I have authority over the grave. 
And all throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus has authority over all angels, as in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 21, where it says he's exalted above all principalities and all powers. All authority in heaven and on earth, everything that happens on earth and everything that happens in heaven is under his jurisdiction. No angel has a task from God that can't be trumped by Christ. Whatever Christ wants to do, no one can stop him. If he wants to save someone, none can stop him and say, that person is guilty. Jesus can forgive. No one can resist Christ if he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. No one can resist him and make a rebellion against his verdict. Jesus has pure omnipotence bound only by his own character of righteousness and love. And this is what he's announcing to his disciples, these ordinary, weak, doubting disciples on that mountain. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We must realize the weight of what he's saying. Because it's in the light of this fact that he sends out his church. If it's in the light of this fact that he sends out this church, can we rightly accomplish our mission if we don't grasp that all authority has been given to him? Go in my authority. Speaking for me, he tells us. All authority has been given, so go. And when you speak, you're speaking in my authority. You're speaking for the ruler of heaven and earth. You're speaking from the, for the one who is in control of everything. Don't let anyone despise you. Don't be intimidated by anyone. You're speaking for me. Isn't that the case in the scriptures? Whoever I send, if they are received, it's because they are receiving me. And if they are rejected, it's because they are rejecting me. Go in my authority, he sends his church. Go because of my authority, for all men are subject to me, and I am commanding all men to believe. It's not only the church that is under the authority of Christ, but the entire world. And for that reason, we go as his ambassadors and we are telling them what their king has to say. Thus saith the Lord. All men are subject to me. I am commanding them to believe. And if they don't believe, they're in grave danger. So we see here one of the keys to having boldness is to go in the authority of the Lord, realizing you're not speaking for yourself. When you go out there and you talk to people and you talk to your family members about, about Christ and when you talk to strangers about Christ on the street, you're not speaking from your own authority. These are not your thoughts. These are not your commands. This is not your good idea. This is the king's commission. And you're speaking for him. And so you speak with boldness. And you also, this is the key where Paul says in 2 Corinthians, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Understanding that the king is commanding these, these subjects to obey him. Knowing his terror, knowing how much authority he has, we persuade men to believe, lest they fall into the hands of this king. A.T. Robertson says, It is the sublimest of all spectacles to see the risen Christ without money or army or state charging this band of men with world conquest, okay? This is how interesting this picture looks, right? On this mountain in, in Galilee, in the middle of nowhere, and you have this guy saying, 
all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Now go into all the world and make disciples, commanding them. The power and the authority that the world can't see now, they will see one day. It'll probably even shock us Christians to realize how powerful Jesus truly is. What are we to do? Jesus tells us we're to go, we're to make disciples, we're to baptize, and we're to teach. And you'll notice that all these things is simply the continuation of Jesus's ministry. And this is very important to understand. This is not a new thing. He's not telling them to go now with this radically new thing, this new message. It's a continuation of Jesus's ministry because Jesus made disciples, that is, he made students who followed his teachings. That's what a disciple is. He baptized, or his group baptized, and he taught people. And the disciples were even sent out to do that. You remember in Matthew chapter 10, he even sent his disciples out to continue the mission. So there's nothing new here except this. What is new is that they are now being sent to all the nations. Because before, when Jesus sent out his disciples to continue his ministry, he said, go not to the Gentiles. Go only to the house of Israel. What he's now doing after he's risen from the dead is he's saying, go now into all the world and make disciples. That's what you guys have been doing. That's what we've been doing for the last three years, teaching, baptizing, making disciples. Go and do that in all the nations. As I said, a disciple is a student. That's what the meaning of the word is. A follower of Jesus' teachings. And Jesus tells us in verse 20 to teach them. And teaching is primarily what is involved in this mission. And what we see here is Christianity is in fact primarily about teaching. And it's about informing. And it's about spreading news. It's not about changing men's behavior primarily. Even though men's behavior do in fact change, it's not go out into all the world and make good people. Go out into all the world and tell them to stop sinning. Go out into all the world and just create a police force. Do something for crying out loud to stop the sin. Go into all the world and teach. And that is primarily what our mission is as the church in this chapter. It is to teach. It is to preach. It is to inform the mind. We have two things here. We have making disciples and teaching them to observe all things that Christ commanded. You can put it this way. We have conversion and conservation. Because the word observe is the word to guard. To guard carefully. To attend to carefully. To keep watch over. The sense is, go make followers of my teaching. Go make followers of me. Go teach men the truth of the gospel. And convert them. This is baptism. And teach them to keep my teachings or to protect or to guard my teachings. The sense is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says, the things that I've entrusted to you, teach to faithful men who are able to teach others also. We continue to teach the word of God and we protect it and we guard the deposit of truth that Jesus has given. We make converts and we conserve what has been taught. Jesus' teachings. We're not to expect that all nations shall be saved. 
in chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus said something very similar. He said, the gospel, the gospel will be preached in all the world. So it's prophecy. It's going to happen. The gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. When this mission is fulfilled, then Jesus will return. But notice that the gospel goes out as a witness unto all nations. There's no expectation here that the nations will all convert. And the same challenges that we find the disciples facing in chapter 10, they're going to face in all the world. Do you remember when Jesus sent the disciples out in chapter 10? I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And if they hate me, they're going to hate you. What did they do with Jesus, the master? They crucified him. Who did? The religious ones and the irreligious ones. They did not like Jesus. And so they will not like you. If they did this to me, how much more will they do it to you? Jesus says over and over and over again. The same challenges they faced, persecution, scourging, ridicule, rejection, kicking out of families, even death. This is what we have to expect to face. And why is that? It is because we're continuing Jesus' ministry. It's not that Jesus made people mad, but now in this new chapter we have a new message that doesn't make people mad. We're continuing the ministry of Jesus, and what we believe, brothers and sisters, is explosive, controversial, and hated in this world. Do you believe that? What you believe is explosive. If you were to speak this in a crowded room, you'd make everyone in that room angry. It's controversial. It's hated. And as long as we keep our mouths shut, there's no controversy. How many of you can relate to that? You know that in a situation with non-believers, you know if you were to open your mouth, if you were to open your mouth and speak the gospel, and you were to say the things that you actually believe, and if they knew you believed that, or and you weren't making, and you weren't making it private, and you said, this is what the truth is. Excuse me, non-believer, but this is what the truth is. There is a God, and he's just, and he requires perfection, and you're in big trouble. Yeah, you're not okay. <laughs> it's not I'm okay, and you're okay, and everyone's okay. And truth isn't relative. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And the only way for you to be saved is through this bloody sacrifice of Christ. Why? Because God is a wrathful God. And his wrath is upon the unrighteous. And you're unrighteous. God doesn't think you're a good person. And what you need is salvation. What an uncomfortable truth these days. You need to be saved because you're not right with God. But God loves you. This is our message. God is a just God, but he loves the unjust. And he died to save the unjust. Sounds good. But guess what? All your good works are worthless. All that religion of your grandparents and your father and your mom and the last 15 years of your life did nothing for God. Worthless. Dung. You have no righteousness. And it's a free gift. That means you can be saved the same way that a Ted Bundy could be saved. Isn't that good news? 
Yeah, I'm putting you on the same level, and you both can receive mercy from God. Hated message. How many of you can relate that as long as you keep your mouth shut, there's no controversy? Have you ever been in a situation where you just kept your mouth shut because you didn't want controversy? This shows us how important evangelism is and that it's in the speaking that Christianity happens. If you keep your mouth shut, then all the stuff we read about in the Bible doesn't happen. If you open your mouth and proclaim the truth, watch what Jesus says come true. We are being called by Christ to speak. We must be a speaking people. And that is going to mean explosions of controversy. Controversy. But if we keep our mouths shut, then we are not participating in what Jesus is calling us to do. It's amazing how many people in this world don't even know what the gospel is. I challenge you to go ask strangers, can you tell me what the gospel of Jesus is? They don't know. They'll say something. Well, it's about being the best person you can be or something like that, right? He just, Jesus came into the world just to tell everybody that God loves them. Not quite. If men will reject the gospel, let them at least know what they are rejecting. And the amazing thing is that many will accept it. Jesus doesn't send us out with a mission that's going to completely fail. He says, make disciples of every nation. Going to happen. There's people out there who will listen. There's people out there who will become disciples and listen to the truth. There's probably millions of people ready to accept the gospel and millions of, of Christians unwilling to share it because they don't want controversy, even though Jesus is calling us into controversy, isn't he? Evangelism is essentially what Christianity is about, isn't it? What is evangelism? It comes from the word gospel, or good news. This is what Christianity is about, good news. Good news from God that you and I have all heard and we're thankful we did, and we've believed it and been saved. It's the good news of the love of God for sinners and his sacrifice on the cross. And sharing that good news, hearing it and sharing it, is what Christianity is essentially all about. Don't we want our churches to grow? Don't we want to love our neighbors who are perishing? Don't we want to obey Jesus Christ in his command to go and to preach? Yes, we do. And yet for all these incentives, we still struggle, don't we? to open our mouths. John Stott said this, only strong, positive incentives will enable us to overcome these resistances. I don't think that desiring for your church to grow, obeying Jesus' command, because it is a command, and even loving our neighbors is sufficient in and of itself to give us the incentive to fulfill this mission and to preach the gospel in all the world. As good as all those things are, and I don't want to say they're bad, they're all good, because we do want to do those things. But brothers and sisters, the greatest incentive to evangelize and to share the gospel with the world is, it does not come from man. It is not an incentive about, I want my church to grow, I'm going to therefore go create controversy. And sadly, even love for our neighbor 
if that's all if that's all it is isn't going to give us the incentive either and i think we would all understand that not even just obeying the command of jesus as a general is going to give us the incentive all those things are good in their place but the greatest incentive is god and his glory and his name and i'd like to draw your attention to a few things in scripture about this if you're skeptical that the glory of god is the greatest incentive for evangelism romans chapter 1 verse 5 when the apostle paul tells us that he received grace to be an apostle to all nations and he tells us why it was for the sake of god's name romans 1 verse 5 for the sake of god's name i am an apostle to the nations how many of you when you think about evangelism think about doing evangelism for the sake of the name of god how many of you i, I i've shared the gospel for a long time and i have to admit that hasn't been foremost in my thought doing evangelism for the sake of the name was foremost in the apostle paul's thinking in third john chapter 1 verse 7 john is talking about being hospitable towards missionaries people who are passing through and people who are giving their lives for the gospel and he says that it was for god's name's sake that they went out and were sharing the gospel for god's namesake they went out to share the gospel you remember in acts chapter 17 the apostle paul is in athens and the apostle paul is walking around athens and he's seeing all the idols and he's seeing all the idolatry right and what does it say that the apostle paul was stirred for the souls of those people to be saved of course that's important and of course he wanted them to be saved but what he was stirred by was the idolatry because god was not known in athens and it was the idolatry that moved him with passion to preach and reason and persuade daily in the streets on in athens the name of god jesus said in the lord's prayer the first thing our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name chief concern here hallowed be thy name are you concerned about the name of god and whether it is understood known worshiped and hallowed hallowed be thy name jesus tells us to baptize people into the name the greek is literally into the name of the father the son and the holy spirit we are introducing them to god that's what we're doing when we're making disciples and we must get a vision of this brothers and sisters people of god we must get a vision of the glory of god and that what we do is for the glory of god and when looked at like this from this perspective evangelism is no longer a secondary thing is it evangelism is itself worship evangelism is worship evangelism is glorifying god john stott wrote this worship which does not beget mission is hypocrisy it is impossible for me to worship god truly and yet not care two cents whether anyone else worships him too it is not it is impossible for me to worship god truly and yet not care two cents whether anyone else worships him too true or false 
God, you're amazing. God, you're awesome. God, you're holy. God, you're worthy. But I don't care whether, el- whether anyone else worships you too. It was for this reason that the Jews themselves saw not evangelism, they don't have the gospel, but proselytizing in the famous Shema passage in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And they actually saw in that a mandate for spreading the news that he's one. Because he's one, he's the only, he's worthy. And on that, for that reason, we ought to share. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for that reason, to love God is to want others to know him too. To want his own creation to know him too. If you think that evangelism is someone else's job, you miss the whole point. You miss the gist. You miss the essence of the mission. If you think it's just the 11's job or it's just the professional evangelist's job, you're not getting the gist that evangelism isn't anything less than the, than the glory of God. The spreading of the message of who God is. The salvation of a sinner, mark this, is not the end in itself. The salvation of a sinner is not the end in itself. If that is an end, you will not have an incentive to cause controversy. The salvation of a sinner is not the end in itself. The end is the glory of God. It is for those sinners to know God as the God that is, and to worship him, knowing God and glorifying him as the God of love and grace. I'm not suggesting that his glory is separate from God's love for man. I'm not suggesting that all these other incentives I listed, wanting our churches to grow, loving our neighbor, being concerned about their soul, obeying Jesus' command, I'm not suggesting those are, those are bad. Those are all good. But we are to infuse all of them with the end of the glory of God. Why do we want our churches to be full? So that God might be glorified. Why do, we, why do we love our neighbor? Well, we don't want them to perish, that's correct, but we want them to be saved because the, the eternal life that God calls men to is to know him. Why do we want to obey Christ's commands? Hopefully not just because I'm doing my duty mindlessly, but because I appreciate and understand why he's commanding it. He's commanding us to go into all the world and make disciples so that people can know God. And they're going to hate you, right? Why? Because of the truth that we're preaching about God. Jesus says they'll put you to death and kick you out of the synagogue so they don't know the Father. It's all about the knowledge of God. Just reflect on that this morning, brothers and sisters, and think about it. Are you concerned with the knowledge of God? of God in the earth? Are you concerned with the name of God being hallowed? Is the end the glory of God? Even in the salvation of your soul and the salvation of others. This is the chief incentive to go. Finally, in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, lo, And he gives us an encouragement because he knows we will need encouragement when we start opening our mouths and making waves in this world. I don't know about you, but I want to be a person that makes waves in this world before I leave this earth. Right? You can can live a life where you don't open your mouth. You believe, you're saved, you don't open your mouth, you don't create any controversy. 
But if we do open our mouths, we're going to face lots of difficulties, and Jesus knows that, and he assumes we will be opening our mouths, and he gives us the encouragement that we need. We need this encouragement in order to succeed. It's not enough just to go out there for the glory of God without this encouragement. You'll probably get discouraged. The encouragement we need is this, and if we forget this, we will fail. Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. This is the, this is the words of Jesus to encourage his people. I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. When Moses was sent to Pharaoh, God said, I am with you. When Joshua was sent into the promised land to conquer it, be strong and courageous and don't be afraid of anything that they can do to you. Why? He says to Joshua, because I am with you. And now when Christ is sending out his people into the world to preach the gospel, he says, don't be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. When you face difficulties, don't despair. Why? Because I am with you. I'm with you to protect you. I'm with you to take care of you. If anything happens to you, it's not because I've abandoned you. I'm with you to succeed. There's going to be disciples because I'm actually going to give force to your words. I'm with you and you're not doing this alone. Bree leaves to make us feel warm on the inside. It is a necessary equipment for our mission. John Calvin wrote this, Never certainly would the apostles have had sufficient confidence to undertake so arduous an office if they had not known that their protector sits in the heavens and that the highest authority is given to him. For without such a support, it would have been impossible for them to make any progress. But when they learn that he to whom they owe their services is the governor of heaven and earth, as we talked about, all authority is in, his, in, his, is in him, this alone was abundantly sufficient for preparing them to rise superior to all opposition. You can face everything when you know that he is with you. He, the one who is in control of heaven and earth. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And he's with us always. In the Greek, it is, is actually better translated, all the days. Always is too general. And lo, I am with you all days, all days. Good days, bad days, there's never been a day when Jesus has not been with you as the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. Is it not just because object of our faith is too small that we're afraid and that we shrink? What stronger consolation could believers desire than this, J.C. Ryle says. And what's amazing is that Matthew rounds off his entire gospel with this saying, with Jesus saying, I am with you. For in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, the name of Jesus is proclaimed to be Emmanuel, God with us. And here at the end, Jesus says, I am with you. This is the purpose for Jesus coming into the world. To die for us to redeem a people, to send us forth with his assurance and the confidence that he is with us. So we find four alls in the saying of Jesus. All authority is given to him. We are to go and make disciples of all 
nations. We are to teach them to observe all things that Jesus has commanded and taught. And Jesus will be with us all the days of our lives. Not one day is he absent. What will be the end of this chapter? Jesus tells us, the end of the age, he'll be with us unto the end of the age. Jesus has already spoken much about the end of the age. The Olivet Discourse, you'll remember when the disciples ask, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? The end of this chapter, the end of our mission, is the return of the King. The return of Jesus Christ. The King of Kings will rule this earth. If we were to divide the story of God into chapters, it might look something like this. Chapter 1 was creation. Chapter 2 was the fall. Chapter 3 was the long story of Israel. It's calling progress and failure. Chapter 4 was the coming of Christ to die and rise. Chapter 5 is the Christian church at this time now, preaching and proclaiming his continuing his mission in the earth until he comes. Chapter 6 is his return in rule. Chapter 7 is eternal bliss with God. So we see what the church should be doing. What we, ordinary people, doubtful, weak people, who have been called to this great commission, as it's been said, as it's been called. We, brothers and sisters, are in this chapter now. This involves you. You can ignore it. You can forget about it. But it still involves you. Being ordinary is no excuse. It's not about being strong in yourself, but having faith in him. We are to labor in his authority and under his promise of his unseen presence and his hastening coming. This is what is really important in life. Matthew indeed ends with a cliffhanger. It is not an end, but it is a beginning, and it is our beginning. And so let us, brothers and sisters, and I exhort us this morning, let us speak for his glory. Let us be a church that speaks. Let us be a church that continues his mission, even if we're hated. Let us be concerned chiefly with the glory of God and infuse all other incentives with that incentive. Let's lift our faith to the true object of God and see how worthy he is. Let us see that the one who loves us is worthy of our love. And let us labor, knowing he's with us and awaiting the king. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grasp our place in your story. And I also pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that you are with us. Help us to grasp how amazing that is, what comfort and consolation and strength that brings. I pray that we would be a speaking people. Shake us up out of our complacency Give us boldness. Help us to see that you are in control of everything. Help us to, Lord, be concerned with your name in this earth and be stirred by the fact that men don't know you as the God of righteousness and love. Lord, make us uh, 
a speaking people that fulfill our role in this chapter. And please come soon, we pray. Thank you for our study in Matthew. We pray these things to your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.